invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus, Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, we're looking at the three center blows to Egypt. Uh, they're often referred to as the plagues. And I think you can be happy that I'm not going week by week on each individual plague. We would have 10 weeks of sermons on each plague. That might be a little bit much. And uh, at the end, you'd be ready to leave, leave Egypt too. And uh, if you do have a red Bible in front of you, I encourage you to, there's a pew Bible there. Um, page 65 to 66 are the, the pages that this uh, message covers. So I guess uh, what I'm going to do is I am going to go ahead and I'm going to read these. It's kind of a long section, um, but I'm going to read them. And then we're going to kind of work through each of these plagues as we work through the sermon here this morning. But chapter 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. And as he goes out to the water, say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also on the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people, and tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so, and there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses, Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. But Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away and plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, 
that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the Lord of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And so they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Benjamin Franklin is uh, well known for his wit, his experiments in electricity, uh, probably more popularly, he's well known for being on the $100 bill. Um, he was very active in our nation's founding. Probably what's less well known is that uh, he was a commissioned colonel uh, during the French-Indian War in the 1750s, and he led a brigade of militia up to the Bethlehem Nazareth area here in Pennsylvania to secure it against uh, the French and Indian coalition. And traveling with him was uh, a chaplain, a Reverend Betty, who was described by Franklin as a zealous minister, a zealous Presbyterian minister who complained that the men did not generally attend his prayers and exhortations. Now, in those days, the enlisted were promised, besides pay and provisions, they were promised a quarter pint of rum twice a day. Uh, it was punctually served mid-morning and uh, half the other half in the evening. Now, Franklin observed how punctual the men were to the ordinance of the rum. Distribution uh, was made and he made the, the following recommendation to the chaplain. He said, It is perhaps below the dignity of your profession to act as steward of the rum, but if you were to deal out and only just after your prayers, then you would have them all about you. The chaplain liked the thought, and with the help of a few hands, he officiated the service of the liquor to everyone's satisfaction. 
Franklin remarked after that that never were prayers more generally and punctually attended. It's a humorous story. But how easy it is for us to worship when there is a want to. What happens when we don't want to anymore? Now, in the case of Pharaoh, he never really wanted to. In fact, we're, all, we're halfway through these blows to him, and he still doesn't want to. Now, I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, why don't we want to when we don't want to? Now, in the next cycle of blows, the language begins to shift to describe Pharaoh's heart. His doesn't want to gradually becomes unable not to not want to. Can you follow that? In other words, his heart thickens like unstirred standing cement in the middle of summer. It becomes hard. And as we observe these blows, it's really important for us to take note that given that we all have a human nature, that if we either quench the spirit or don't even have the spirit, it's important that we take a moment to have an honest talk with ourselves before the hand of God falls. It's better to have an honest talk with ourselves before the hand of God falls. That's my main idea from this text. Now, last Sunday, I had shared Paul's analysis. Looking back, Paul had looked back on Egypt and the experience of Pharaoh. And in his analysis, in Romans chapter 9, God's, God had a right to be merciful to whom he would be merciful to. And... Paul said, though, that as we think about that, it might get challenging for us to un understand that. And maybe the, the question of why God has that right is maybe not the question we should be asking ourselves, but rather the how. How does this happen and how does this occur? Because really, that's, really left, that's what's left to us is how does this hardening take place and how do we, can we anticipate it? Can we feel it? Can we know it and respond to it? And so it's important for us to, as we analyze this and think through these three center cycle blows, you know, we ought to be thinking carefully and listening to our own hearts. And you see the gnats when they came, the magicians on the third miracle said, this is, this is none other than the finger of God. Well, here, Pharaoh's stubbornness actually gives us an ex opportunity to e examine how the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart as he said he would do. God's hand starts to, not just the finger, the hand starts to come into view. In fact, uh, in this text, uh, in verse um, 19, excuse me, not verse 19, but in chapter 9, in verse uh, 3, it says, if you refuse to let them go, go and still hold them, behold the hand 
of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague. And I think it's very important that we all consider and we ought to all have an honest talk with ourselves before the hand of God falls. Someone asked me a few, you know, that last Sunday, how long do you think that these, these blows occurred? And, and kind of what was the sequence there? And it wasn't a thought that I had really given a lot of thought. I know that there are, there's an end point where it culminates in the time of year that is the Passover. And uh, that would be like in the March or April range. And uh, I started to think about it and read, and, and, and some have suggested that maybe it was a six to eight month period, and that deduction is made based upon some naturalistic progressions of different known pollutants that sometimes come into the river, and there are seasons in which the flies are more avail available and, and that sort of, th sort of thing. Um, now, that's a naturalistic explanation of a six to eight month cycle, but I personally believe that this really likely occurred in a very condensed time period, probably three to four months, maybe even occurring every other week, progressively. Now last Sunday, I, I, I provided some of the structural analysis of the blows and how I grouped them as threes and a plus one at the end. But this middle set that we're looking at now is a lot, it's a lot like the first one, but now it's a little bit louder and it's a little bit worse. We have in this center series a very similar structure in which, for example, Pharaoh goes out in the morning and approaches Pharaoh in a, in a very public place. The second plague that comes, it's not announced in a public location. It's like he goes into the presence of Pharaoh in the, in the palace. And the third, while it's much more simple in its presentation, gives the impression that there's no negotiation. It's just, this is what's happening. This is what's, you, you've ignored the first two. God's going to now bring on the third. So as we walk through this, I want you to see how they are consistent in their communication, but I want us to understand that these are also revealing something about the Lord God himself. And the first, the flies, I believe, teach us that the Lord is not distant. That he's not distant. And to teach Pharaoh that he is not distant, we read in verse 23, look at chapter 8, and look at verse 23. Moses says, thus I will put a division between my people. He, Moses is speaking on behalf of the Lord here. I will put a division between my people and your people, so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In other words, God is not abstract. He's actually very involved. And to demonstrate this, he's going to show, look, he is able to divide and separate and send judgment upon a particular people in the mix of a nation. He can protect his own while putting out judgment upon Egypt itself. It's no small thing to have a plague rain down upon a people. In fact, though, 
it's actually quite another to set up a containment zone in which, you know, the people in this particular area are spared. Um, this would actually look a lot like even today if you considered what we read in the book of Revelation. If you look at some of the plagues that are described in the book of Revelation, there is a plague in which out of the bottomless pit, there is described locusts that come out which are given temporal time period to inflict judgment upon the earth and torment. But the book of Revelation says, but only on those who have not the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, God is able to protect his own and pour out judgment on those who are not his. And this leads us to understand that here, Pharaoh is hearing that the Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who are his. In verse 20 through 24, we see the description of the distinction that's going to be made between Egypt and his own people. Moses meets Pharaoh at the edge of the Nile. Moses commands him to let God's people go or else these flies are going to come on his people. Flies on his servants, flies on his land, and the land will become ruined. Now, ruined there is not the idea of that it becomes a, a dystopian, destructive zone, but it's more, it's like it becomes so intolerable, it's like Egypt was the place to go. It was a place where it was temperate, climate-wise, it was an enjoyable place to live. It would be ruined. All of what they sold in the marketplace to say, hey, come and be like going to Florida. Like suddenly Florida is not a very nice place to be. We wouldn't want to go there. Uh, on our anniversary, uh, Abby and I, you know, we, we, we were married in late August. And uh, every anniversary or so, we tried to get down to, to the Jersey Shore where we had our honeymoon uh, almost 25 years ago. And uh, sometimes we will go maybe just, you know, because it's close to the school start. Sometimes we go into September, and in September, it's, uh, there's not as many people on the beach, right? But it's not just because school is in session, we've learned, that it's limited in terms of people. There's also flies at the beach in September. And the wind changes, and flies come in from the marshes that are on the Jersey coast. And you're sitting there like a hunk of meat. And they're coming and they're biting. And they're like going to carry you off the beach. It's not a pleasant place. We have sat there and we have wrapped towels all around us to keep the flies off of our legs. It is painful when they bite. We actually left the Jersey, like the Cape Wildwood area, and we went down to Cape May Point hoping that the crosswind from the south would actually drive the, wouldn't bring the flies. But this is the kind of like annoyance that this would have created. And this is the first significant distinction that's made between Israel and Egypt. The first three blows Israel was not exempt from. And they suffered along with everyone else. 
And I asked myself, why might that be? Why might that be that, that there was some suffering for God's people, at least early on? I believe that this was probably as chastening for their lack of trust in God during the, during the testing of the, the bricks and the straw. They cried out in anguish and distrusted the sovereignty of God to allow that trial. There is also, I believe, a secondary reason, and that is because I believe they are then going to appreciate God's grace towards them. They went through suffering, but now they're being spared and they're looking at their neighbors and realizing they could very well be in the same boat. There's also a third, and I believe it's helped them to understand that they are particularly chosen by God, that they are selected by God and spared mercifully. It reminds me of, in many ways, how Jesus Christ and his earthly ministry reminded us that the Lord is a good shepherd. And in the voice of Jesus, we hear this truth that I am the good shepherd and I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. All of these plagues are going to culminate in the good shepherd giving his life, if you will, for the sheep. All of these look forward to that day. Now, we may not always be the kind of sheep that we ought to be, but the Lord's people have a particular sensitivity that is given to them so that they can hear and appreciate the voice of the Lord. Jesus, in his ministry, he talked to the Pharisees and he told them, you have not believed in me because you are not a part of my sheep. Now, why would that be? And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Those who are the Lord's have within them a sensitivity to the voice of God, and they follow him. But the Lord also knows who are not his. Verse 25 to 32, there is this demarcate that takes place and Pharaoh's people are going to get the brunt of this punishment. Pharaoh may come to know the Lord in a particular way. In fact, it, it says here in verse 23 that, um, that this is happening so that Pharaoh may know, Pharaoh may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Now, that's a kind of knowledge, though, that is absent a genuine point of conversion. This is a kind of knowledge that is not of a saving kind. And the reason why that's the case is because this knowledge that Pharaoh has is not infused with a love or a faith or a delight in God himself. Love causes us to consider the interests of those who show love towards us. It's reciprocating. And in this context, 
Knowledge of God has to be more than mere acquaintance. Okay, this is this is this God. This okay, I didn't know that there was this kind of a God. It's more intellectual. But the reality is, Pharaoh, in spite of the fact that he doesn't have the kind of knowledge that would be of a saving kind, God himself knows what Pharaoh is all about. God knows that Pharaoh is a bad faith actor. Because bad faith actors attempt to negotiate and find a more acceptable plan of action that they actually would prefer. They want to follow Jesus up to a point They're not willing to cut off the hand. They're not willing to gouge out the eye. They're not going to take desperate measures. And the point when it becomes kind of painful, like I've got to actually make some real hard decisions and make choices, they stop and say, "Uh, I think I can negotiate better terms. Pharaoh says in verse 25, um, go sacrifice to the God within the land. But that's not what God had said. God had said, you've got to let them go out of the land, go three days' journey, and they weren't willing. Now, in this explanation that Moses gives, he says, well, this isn't practical for us to do it inside the land. Our worship will offend the Egyptians, and it will be counterproductive. They'll want to stone us, and we won't be able to work in this economy anymore. And uh, I, I realize that what has beginning to show itself in Pharaoh is a pattern. And I think that, that as a pastor, I have been in pastoral ministry now for 12 years. I have observed a pattern in some folks in which character gets revealed gradually. I have found that when a counselee is unwilling, for example to follow to the letter of what they have been asked to do, then they will regress. Because what they're doing is they're trying to alleviate the shame that they feel rather than give up their affection for a particular sin. And to come to Christ requires such a radical loyalty, a person can't say, okay, I will follow to this point, and I won't go any further. Christ said in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever who would save his life is going to lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall save it. And in this case, Pharaoh is trying to save his life. He, he was the ruler of the most powerful nation on earth. And you're telling me, Moses, that I'm going to lose the economy of all of these slaves? I don't think so. If I let you go out three days' journey, how will I know you'll come back? Pharaoh is trying to save his life. But Pharaoh is going to lose his life. It's important to have conversation with yourself about why we don't want to listen, for example, to leaders that God has put into your life. This is not to say that a person is not born again. However, it is possible that we are allowing ourselves to be led by the flesh and not by the spirit. 
and it is the Holy Spirit who will actually lead us into greater fellowship with your spiritual leaders and not less. And it is important that we have an honest talk with ourselves before the hand of God falls, whether for ultimate judgment or for chastening to get you back on the path. It's to your advantage to have an honest talk with oneself. Now there is a second plague that is outlined for us in the first seven verses of chapter 9. And as we've noted, Pharaoh is a bad faith actor and he hardened his heart this time also and he would not let the people go. He's a man living in delusion, thinking that he can manipulate God. He, he doesn't realize is that the Lord is sovereign over tomorrow. And in verses 1 through 7, we see uh, Moses marching into Pharaoh's palace and telling him, look, if, this is, if you're going to keep making this a pattern, there is going to be a plague that will come upon your livestock, and it's going to happen tomorrow. The Lord will set this to come to pass, and he will decide when it will occur. This is, you see in verse, uh, verse 3, we see this uh, articulated. Um, the land, behold, the land of the Lord will fall into a very severe plague. And then drop in verse 4, it says, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So these are very familiar patterns we're starting to see. And then in verse, not, ver verse 5, it says, And the Lord set a time saying tomorrow, tomorrow. In the first cycle of blows, Pharaoh was offered a choice. Pharaoh was offered a choice as to when the frogs would leave the land. And it appealed to his, his pride. He, he was flattered to think, oh, I can control this, music, this magician Moses and I can, I can call the shots. Hey, okay, tomorrow I want all the frogs to leave. But when the flies came, it's a lesser point, but it's now a prominent point in the second plague. In the flies, he was told that tomorrow the flies would come. Tomorrow, the livestock would be slaughtered. And we're going to get to when the tomorrow is the hail that would come. And tomorrow... The locusts would come. This is designed actually to mock Pharaoh. When it says very pointedly that the Lord will set a time, that's an indication that now God is mocking Pharaoh. And it's actually designed to mock any of us, really, who believe that we can control tomorrow. What kind of plague is going to arrive tomorrow? Death will come. He is delusional about death. He thinks he controls his own life, but he doesn't. There is a delusion about his own even repentance. He ought not to have been putting off to tomorrow what he should have taken care of today. Pharaoh should have repented of his sin, and while he had the opportunity to do so, 
But I want you to notice that the, the words that are used in our English translation are perhaps um, a little bit more opaque. They're, they're, they're kind of not as clear. The Hebrew that's used in these sequences of plagues are a lot more sensitive to the idea of causation. We think about, for example, someone flying a plane. There's a couple of things that go on in flying a plane. Like, you can't just fly a plane. You have to, you have to maneuver controls to cause it to, to fly. And then you find yourself flying with the plane. But we just out of simplicity say, hey, you know, the pilot flies the plane. And we don't give it a whole lot of thought. Hebrews thought a whole lot more about it. And they used language that was designed to help people understand the role that the subject has in an action. And, for example, in chapter 7, verse 22, I want you to see kind of this progression. Because there's going to be a shift that takes place here. And it's really important for us to see it. In chapter 7, verse 22, uh, we read that the magicians, uh, the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their secret arts. They, they, they made the, the, blood, uh, the water turn into blood. And so Pharaoh's heart, it says, remained hardened. And that's just a simple statement of fact. And the words that are used there in the Hebrew are just a simple statement. This is the way that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Not a lot of discussion about what was the cause of that. And then in ch chapter 8, verse 15, we see a change, a slight alteration of this formula. In verse 15, it says, And when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, that the frogs went away, he hardened his heart and wouldn't listen to them. That is a statement that Pharaoh is actively hardening. He's causing his heart to harden. Then we go to chapter 8, verse 19. After the gnats come, we see that the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Just another statement of fact. Not a lot of analysis going on there. So we have statement of fact. We have Pharaoh hardening his heart. Statement of fact. Look at verse, chapter 8, verse 32. After the flies. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. This is a description that Pharaoh is causing his heart to harden. In chapter 9, verse 7, so you see alternation. Chapter 7, verse 9. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock was of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Just another statement of fact. And there is this alternation between statement of fact and then Pharaoh doing some acting upon his heart to cause himself to grow harder. Now, I want to ask you, is this a pattern that's just going to continue on forever? I mean, surely at some point, Pharaoh's going to, like, soften up here. 
And I would like to say there is no guarantee that someone being often warned to turn from their sin will actually soften their heart. Proverbs 29.1 says, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Pharaoh did not let Egypt go willingly. Even at the end, we're going to see that Pharaoh still didn't want to let them go. In fact, Pharaoh lost his privilege to govern. The people rebelled and mutinied and pushed them out of the land. Everyone should ask ourselves, why is it that we don't want to, you can fill in the blank. When God's word is abundantly clear about whatever it is, I think it would be wrong for us to delude that we can control tomorrow to think that I've got time to make any particular changes that I want to make. As soon as you become aware that you have a change to make, you ought to make it. To put off to tomorrow what you need to do today, there is no guarantee that you will be softer tomorrow than you are today. We are not sovereign over tomorrow. And we see the shift start to take place in chapter 9, verse 8 through 12. We see that the Lord is long-suffering, but not forever. Now in verse 11, it says, uh, let's look at chapter, chapter 9 and verse uh, 8 through 11. We see the handfuls of soot that are taken from the kiln, and Moses throws them into the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and it becomes a fine dust, and then boils break out. Aren't you glad I didn't use actual boil picture there? Oh my goodness, I was looking through photos, and I came across boils, and I thought I was going to puke. That's about as good as we're going to get today. The magicians, it says in verse 11, couldn't even stand in the presence of Pharaoh because it was so severe. And the concluding line in this cycle of the third plague is, is pretty devastating. Because we see in verse 12, it says, notice with me, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken. We have a significant change here. Here, Pharaoh is not the ultimate cause of his hardness, although he is definitely the contributing cause. And the reason that God, the reason that Pharaoh hardens his heart and is stuck now is that Pharaoh is given by God what he's wanted all along. How does God harden the human heart? 
by taking his hands off and by, sa by saying, okay, you've wanted this. And now I'm not going to steer you away from what you've always wanted. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that God gave them over to a reprobate mind. And this is the most important lesson that we can learn about the sovereignty of God over the hearts of man. We may get all hung up on the why, but that's not so important as the how. The how is in our hands. And when opportunity is presented to us, and we do nothing with the opportunity, we have only ourselves to blame. It is way more important than all the arguments that can occur on all the details. But what we see in these cycles, what we see here is an emphasis upon the mortality, and it becomes so much more ominous because The first cycle of three plagues, it ended with the gnats. Do you remember what symbol Moses used? He struck the dust of the earth, and they became gnats. Here, the third symbol is ashes. Ashes are taken and tossed into the air. Don't we know that dust to dust we shall turn, and to ashes to ashes we will go? At the end of the third cycle, the lights are going to go out. Pitch black darkness is going to fall upon all of Egypt, signifying that this is, they're right on the cusp, and it's going to end. The lights are going to go out. And Paul, in his ministry to the Corinthians, he said, you know, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade others. Thank God we have a great Savior. His mercy is from generation to generation. And his long-suffering, and he's not willing that any should perish, but that we should all come to repentance. But one day his, his long-suffering will come to an end. And we should not presume upon tomorrow that we have infinite amount of time. We have no guarantee that if not driving out of this parking lot, we will not be hit with another car coming on our way home. We have no way to guarantee our future. What better way to do it than to put yourself into the hand of God? He said, if you are his sheep, no one will be able to pluck you out of his hand. He and his father are one. What a glorious hope, a glorious rest that can be ours. And it is, though, true that as we walk through texts like this that are, can be kind of challenging to us and kind of hard to process, they're there for our good. Because it's honestly, it is better to have an honest talk with ourselves before the hand of God falls. The Lord is not distant. He is sovereign over tomorrow. And his long-suffering, though, is not forever. Now, I know that there is a thing that's called seasonal affective disorder. 
However, there are times when we don't want to. I, I understand that. But I don't think that rum in the service of liquor is the answer for us. What we need ultimately is that we need the Holy Spirit to awaken our hearts, to give us a deep and abiding love for Him above all that we see in this world. And we need to be praying that the Holy Spirit would pour out love in our hearts so that we would not just have an artificial knowledge of God as, oh, we have God and country. No, God and country is going away, folks. We need the Holy Spirit to implant a love for Him and a repentance from sin and a renewal of righteousness. Let's pray.